from Genesis, it says this, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then Jeremiah gives us this diagnosis. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then Jesus himself said this. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And then I want to go to those sages of the 20th century, the Rolling Stones. And the Stones said this about the human heart. They said, I look inside myself and see my heart is black. I see a red door. And I want to paint it black. Maybe then I'll fade away and not have to face the facts. It's not easy facing up when your whole world is black. So it's not what goes into us, what we look at, what we consume, that makes our heart unclean. It's like Jesus said, and like the stones sang about, the problem is the heart itself in some way. It's what comes out of us that Jesus says that defiles us, that makes us unclean in some way. So on the one hand, we've got this diagnosis of the heart that the scripture tells us about uh, and being the heart is in dire need of renovation due to its natural bent toward evil. We also have these great promises throughout the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Jesus, in his life and his death and his resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is what Ezekiel said about the human heart. He said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So if we bring this right back into our text today, it's hard to get away from it that this beatitude is talking about the condition of the human heart. And it namely says that those who have pure hearts And this word pure in the text really does mean clean, but it can also mean unmixed. It says that those who have pure hearts will in fact see God. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So this morning I want to invite us into this story of the heart, this way of the heart. We're going to come to Jesus in a sense as the master cardiologist, if you like. Let's trust that he's going to be about the work of heart surgery this morning that perhaps we'll in some sense go under the knife together with this master physician Jesus as we look at this. So I want to talk about choices for a moment this morning as well. The great C.S. Lewis writes this about the human condition. He says this, and it should be on the screen, I think. People often think, of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices All your life long, you're slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. 
either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one state or the other. See, I think this morning for us to consider this, that a healthy spirituality is about choices. Choices in turning toward God or away from him. It's kind of like our hearts are tuned to something like a giant algorithm. You know, you think, think about it a little bit like Amazon or Google or Facebook, that the decisions we make and the things that we look at, what we consume and what we direct our attention to, all begin to orient our hearts, cause our hearts to be drawn after certain outcomes, either toward God or away from him. And Jared spoke a little bit about this last week, didn't he? He said that those who turn their faces toward God ultimately will experience his presence as a consuming, fiery love full of the joy and the ecstasy of God. But those who turn away from God experience that same love as a purging or maybe even a punitive kind of fire. So our decisions, moment by moment, can solidify us on this path towards God or away from him. But what about the motivations of our heart? That comes into play as well, doesn't it? It's not just the choices we make, but it's the motivation kind of behind our choices too. The Talmud, which is the Jewish, another Jewish text that they use that summarize their, their law, um, the Talmud has this great little saying that says this. It says, we do not see things as they are, but we see things as we are. And there's such truth to that, I think. We put our own lens of interpretation, our own spin onto what we see, don't we, if we're honest with ourselves. We're all subject to putting some kind of spin or distortion or filtering what we see in the world. And most of the time, it kind of shows our motives up as being somewhat mixed. If we're honest with ourselves, as we approach life, we're not really always pure in the motives of our heart. We possess what we call ulterior motives a lot of the time. And too often, we sadly find a way to manipulate or twist the facts and get our own way or move toward a favorable outcome that suits us. And we do this because we have many times been wounded. We're hurting. Um, We do this out of an instinct for self-preservation or maybe we do it just simply to to get ahead in life. I imagine if we thought about it, many of us can point to a time in our lives when we've maybe been at the mercy of somebody who was a, a clever manipulator and on the backside of that, we've kind of realized what has happened to us. Might have been a boss, might have been a coworker, might have been a friend or a parent. But uh, we've been wounded by people as we've gone through life. And so we learn to kind of hide our motivations behind a series of defenses that we build up over time in our lives. We create this elaborate smokescreen of social rituals to protect ourselves. But I think that the purity of heart that Jesus is calling blessed in this beatitude is surely one that 
engages with others with an openness, that it engages others with a, a vulnerability and perhaps without guile or deceit or and adopts this posture um, that is open to learn and open to correction rather than manipulation. So often when we maybe have been on the end of manipulation or ulterior motives, and it can even be dressed up in the baggage of kind of church ministry and church programs, we can end up putting up these walls of defensive protection, of cynicism, of suspicion, or of bitterness. And I know this because I've been guilty of this in the past. I have experienced this, sadly, in my own life. I have put those walls up. I have let those things in. Our trust gets eroded in people when we feel like that we can see through them. And it's only when we're able to release our own ulterior motives and release our hurts back to Jesus that we can experience the help and healing power of the Holy Spirit to help guide our hearts back into this transparency that Jesus talks about in this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I think this purity of heart also speaks of like a singleness of purpose. So there is this singleness of purpose that describes this purity of heart. Soren Kierkegaard, the great existential thinker of the mid-19th century, said this in a book of the same name. He said, purity of heart is to will one thing. And what is that one thing? He replies, that one thing is God who is the good. Likewise, you might know this Psalm 27, where David wrote of this one thing as well, this longing of the heart. He said, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Jesus would go on himself and he would talk about whether a man can treasure up two things or just one, whether we'd be able to see with double vision or just singularly, whether we would owe allegiance to two masters or just the one. So Jesus hints at this here in this beatitude that those of a pure heart are perhaps singularly focused on God and on doing as well. The Apostle Paul said this as well. He said, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For many of us, perhaps we're a long way from being able to say this one thing I do. Perhaps it's like more like, you know, 40 things I dabble in. If you're anything like me, you know, I kind of sit there in despair sometimes as I close down 40 or 50 different tabs that I have open on my internet browser. Um, my mind split 40 or 50 different ways at any one time. Or maybe I think about my own life where I'm giving myself to, you know, all these different things here, there, and everywhere, thinking about the next purchase, thinking about how my business is doing, thinking about stuff that's happening in church, my family, whatever it is. And I forget that my life should be orientated around this sun at the center, who is Jesus, that everything else should be in orbit around this sun, who is Jesus. Um, we do this so easily, don't we? We forget that our one thing, that our first love, Jesus, should be the center of our heart. 
And I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 34. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I love this little verse in the Psalms because I think it's got this circular logic to it. I think it says, whenever we set our heart's trajectory on pursuing God, when we make him our delight, when he becomes the desire of our heart, guess what? He gives you the desire of your heart, which is himself. When you set pursuing his presence as the one thing that your hearts desire, the one thing that you're seeking after with your whole heart, when you set your heart's gaze, the eyes of your heart, and you fix them resolutely on Jesus, pursuing him above all else, guess what? I think he meets us in that pursuing. Not some kind of transaction that we've entered into. Sometimes in moments of encounter, Sometimes, but more likely, it's like water seeping into a sponge over time that if we have spent time marinating in his presence, it eventually becomes apparent to us that he is, in fact, all around us and dwelling within us. And the eyes of our hearts have begun to be open to that. I want to ask us this morning, I want to invite us in to having the eyes of our hearts gripped by a better vision, by a more beautiful vision that what the world can offer us. You know, the world cannot satisfy what our hearts are desiring. There is only one thing that can satisfy, and that is Jesus. And that is, in essence, my sermon today. That's the one point that I want to make today. That is the one thing that I want to communicate today. I want us to consider this morning how we can reorientate our hearts toward Christ in a very simple way. I want to talk about seeing. What does it mean to see God this morning? Centuries before Jesus, the psalmist talked about this as well. He, he was contemplating who it would be who would get to stand in the presence of God. He said this, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has, a, who, who has clean hands and a pure heart. So they, he linked together being in the presence of God with having clean hands and a pure heart. And what he meant was a rightness of the exterior world, our hands representing our actions, and then a rightness of our interior world represented by our hearts. He's talking about no conflict between our inner world and our outer world. There's no hypocrisy in the way that we are. Clean hands tell of right actions, don't they? They tell people around us It's visible to the people around us and the outside world to see. Um, But a pure heart is is hidden and uh, it's only for the Lord to discern a pure heart. So blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. I I love this beatitude. If if I'm honest, this is my favorite beatitude. Um, I've always thought of this beatitude as the kind of like the mystic's beatitude, as a wannabe mystic myself. You know, I've, it's always been my favorite beatitude. The mystics throughout the centuries were all about seeing God. Their goal, the mystic's goal, was pursuing with their whole being what they called the beatific vision. This seeing God face to face that is actually the ultimate hope of our salvation itself. 
Apostle Paul wrote about this, didn't he? He said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul also writes elsewhere in Ephesians of having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, which sounds an awful lot like what Jesus is getting at in this beatitude as well. I want to ask everybody in the room this morning, do you, do you feel like you struggle to see God sometimes, if you're honest with yourself? In a sense, you're, you're in good company because, as we know, John writes this at the beginning of his gospel. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is at the Father's side has made him known. You know, woven throughout the story of scripture is this obsession with seeing God from the garden where Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day to Moses requesting to see God and getting just a glimpse of his backside as his glory passed by. Then we've got Jacob who wrestled face to face with the angel of the Lord. Was it like a pre-incarnate Jesus? Who knows? We don't know. Then the story of the people of God is one of seeking God's presence, to see him. Jesus tells us that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, we look at his express image, who is Jesus. Jesus showed us. Then right at the end of this story, at the renewal of all things, where God will be all in all, and we will see him face to face and be in his presence forever. This, this is the goal of faith. This is the great pursuit of our lives, the longing to see God. This longing must be at the foundation of us wanting to see God bring justice or our advocacy for the poor or our desire to see the broken hearted and the sick healed or to see many others come to know Christ. But I think if we're honest as well, we so often disqualify ourselves from this beatitude when we think about the purity of heart that it talks of. We kind of say, pure in heart? Nah, too difficult. I'm out. I'm done. Sounds too difficult. But here's the thing though. You know, Jesus isn't calling the already pure hearted to follow him. We know this, don't we? He calls the misfits, he calls the outsiders, he calls the broken, he calls the thieves, he calls the sexually immoral, all of which you and I were. I was the misfit, I was the outsider, I was the broken, I was the thief, I was the sexually immoral. He calls all of us into this life, into a life of orientating our hearts toward him and his way. So maybe this cleanliness of heart that Jesus is talking about isn't living up to some kind of moral perfection. It's not some kind of ethical superiority he's getting at here. Sure, our actions do matter. They do. Right action flows out of a heart that is rightly oriented. Jesus saves his sternest rebukes for those who set themselves up as the moral guardians of the faith. We know this, don't we? The, the Pharisees, those who were very concerned about rightness of actions, the clean hands side of the thing, if you will. Amongst his many rebukes, Jesus called the Pharisees blind, 
Woe to you, blind guides, you blind fools, you blind men. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus said in John, for judgment I came into this world for that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see, and your guilt remains. So you see, these Pharisees, they excluded themselves from being able to see Jesus for for who he was. Their pride and their arrogance and claiming to be able to see, in fact, closed the deal for them that they were, in fact, blind. Blind to see Jesus for who he was. And blind to see the beauty of the unbreaking rule of God in their very midst. And in the people on which they laid their heavy burdens of law keeping. This is the upside down kingdom that we're talking about here. That those who say they can see are in fact blind, blinded by their own hypocrisy. Had these Pharisees been honest with themselves and taken the road of humility that they perhaps didn't have the whole thing sewn up, perhaps they too would have been able to see their own pride and hypocrisy cause the windows of their hearts to be covered over with grime that neither allowed light in or them to see out. And it's only when we too find a humility that we confess our own judgmentalism, our own pride and our own hypocrisy that we too may begin to be able to see. We too will only see the sins of others if we remain in a tragic kind of spiritual blindness like that of the Pharisees. The sin in others' lives, their faults and feelings becomes all we want to see as we descend into judgmentalism and hypocrisy. But if we humble ourselves, if we admit that we need to pull the plank out of our own eye before pointing out the speck in another, then perhaps we are on a path to clear our vision. Jesus will come and clear the dirt from the window of our hearts that not only lets light in, but allows us to begin to truly see out. Jude told me a sweet story during the week about uh, Innes, our 10-year-old. She she heard a song, Losing My Religion, not the REM version, but it was another version of this song. Um, she heard this song for the first time and initially she was totally affronted by this. She was like, huh, that's not a very nice lyric, mum, losing our religion. We're not about that. And then Jude took a moment to explain to her, um, you know, it's actually a good thing to lose our religion. You know, whenever religion becomes all about a bunch of rules that we have to keep, then losing it is exactly what we want to do. 
And then I just thought about this for a wee moment. And then she turned around to her mummy and just said, isn't it good that we've lost our religion, mum? And uh, I hope that's true. I really pray that's true. I hope that we can truly say that this is a community where the toxic baggage that comes from judging others, from putting on a front and demanding good behavior has been left behind. I pray that we're becoming a community that will be able to see God at work in the broken and the hurting, the messy and the messed up, the criminal and the alcoholic, the drug addicted and the sexually broken. I hope we can see that, that those are the people that Jesus is calling to be his people and that he is by his spirit already at work and inviting them into the wholeness that is to be found in him. See, purity of heart isn't about getting everything right. Like there is no margin for error. Like it's 100% perfection or nothing. That's not purity of heart. It is more so about the trajectory of your heart. Where are you aiming at? Are you living cross-eyed? Are your motives mixed? We're talking about living in a unified way, holistically aiming our whole lives at Jesus and in seeing his kingdom come. We're not talking about a compartmentalized kind of heart of mixed motives. And listen, just a reminder that God, as we were talking about earlier this morning, God is the God who is closer than your very own breath. He is closer to you than you will ever know. In him, we live and move and have our being. And so if you don't see him, then perhaps it's not because he's far from us or hidden from us, but perhaps it's maybe just that the trajectory of our hearts is off just a couple of clicks. Maybe the eyes of our hearts have been dimmed a little so that we can't see him. I love how Brian Zand paraphrases this beatitude. He says, blessed are those who have a clean window in their soul for they will perceive God when and where others don't. Can I invite you to stand and I invite the band to come up and we're going to finish in a moment here. As we do finish here, I want to invite us into a practice this morning. Uh, We're going to take bread and wine in a moment as we do every week. Um, And I'm sure you're aware that this week saw the start of Lent. Um, Wednesday passed, marked the beginning of Lent, 40 days before Resurrection Sunday, that uh, in the traditional, in the church calendar has traditionally been a, a time that is set aside for the preparation of the heart and very often the practice that the church engages in is a fasting of some, of some sort, a renunciation of some sort. Maybe it's fasting from news or social media or alcohol or sugar or whatever it is. Good for you if you've decided to fast from something in this season already. Um, I want to invite us to adopt a practice with a desire to create a space in our hearts through which we purposely reorientate our hearts toward Jesus. I want to invite you into that this morning. I want you to just ask yourself in a moment here now, 
what is the trajectory of your own heart? What is the orientation of your own heart this morning, here now? Is the orientation of your heart toward Jesus and his kingdom this one thing? Is he, is he your one thing this morning? Have we given ourselves to this one thing? I want to invite us as well this morning to, rather than fasting from sugar or chocolate or whatever it may be, how about we give up religion for Lent? That might be a good one. How about we give up judgmentalism as a community for Lent? How about we give up hypocrisy for Lent? How about we give up cynicism for Lent? I want to invite you into the Eucharist. You know, the Eucharist is an encounter of the heart where we move beyond mere words or rational thought. We're invited in the Eucharist to get out of our heads and to go to a place where we don't just talk about the mystery of Christ. We chew on it. Jesus didn't say, think about this or look at this or even worship this. Jesus said, eat this, drink this, experience this. So let's come to the table with our hearts engaged, remembering him as we do so, but offering our hearts to him afresh at the beginning of this Lenten season. And I want to invite you into practice this morning. This is, there is an ancient prayer practice that's been practiced for centuries, particularly in the Eastern Orthodox Church and amongst Franciscans, where the head is bowed lower than the heart to remind us that we approach God with our heart first and not our head. And to do that kind of bowing, you need to be on your knees. You need to put your hands on the floor and you need to bow so that your head is on the floor. So if you're comfortable this morning in doing that, I want to invite you into this practice this morning. I'm just looking at Billy there. He's got sore knees. Anybody who's got sore knees, <laughs> feel free to not, not engage in this. Um, but for the rest of us, I want to invite you to humble yourself before the Lord. Humble yourself so that your heart is raised above your head. Do it before you come to the table. Do it after you come to the table. But I invite you to do it this morning as we sing and as we come to the table.